1: Hello and welcome to Barron's Live, Financial News Edition. I'm online editor Justin Cash, and you've probably noticed that we've been running a lot of stories about the dearth of IPOs recently. A pandemic boom has turned into a rut for capital markets. Policymakers in London are racing to keep up with global exchanges as they all fight it out for a slice of the pie. But are things turning a corner? Some investors certainly think so. With the likes of ARM and Instacart making successful debuts. Can retail investors help push that rebound even higher? James Deal, co-founder of Primary Bit, a platform trying to bring more of them into public markets. Certainly hope so. James, thanks so much for joining me today. Why don't we start by taking stock of where London's capital markets are right now and how involved retail
0: investors are here compared to other countries? Thanks, Justin. So um, if I may, if you take a look at history, uh, always interesting, you have to go back to the 1950s to, to take a data point that actually the entire stock market was individuals, there were no institutions. By the time you reach the middle of the 1980s, the UK market was circa 30% owned by individual investors. And that number has dropped since then to reach a, a relative low today. Today, the UK is circa 11 or 12% owned by retail investors, which compares to the likes of European nations pushing closer to 30%. Uh, The US is 40 plus. And if you push across East, you look to the Middle East, sort of 60%, Asia as high as 80% ownership by individuals in markets. So we are a laggard in, in that regard. What are the consequences
1: of being a laggard there? Is that having a direct impact on the listings battles that we're seeing at the moment and people maybe not looking towards the UK when they are coming to flow?
0: Well, look, the, the title of today's session, you know, is Are retail investors, the key to London's IPO battle is, is a very big question. Uh, and the answer has to be that, you know, it's not the key. But actually, the more I look into this, the more we find that there are certain elements of that to be very much the case. It's true. It was quoted to me last week by one of the biggest US banks that the reason the US has such good levels of liquidity is because it's 40% owned by individuals, because what that brings is a diversification on the share register. You have to have buyers and sellers to have a functioning and efficient market. So when we look at the UK, uh, I wouldn't say that retail is the key, but it's a very, very important part of the jigsaw for a number of reasons. And I think it's important just to take stock of the fact that uh, for far too long, the proverbial individual or retail investor has been seen as either a day trader or a missold pensioner who's going to come and sue you for misinformation. Of course, The reality is that neither of those are true. Those are extremes. And in between those two points, I would say is a bell curve that shows you that we actually have a very, very good community of informed individuals who can source information for free and make an investment decision for the long term and indeed do so. How much of the blocker to getting them more involved in
1: equity markets is cultural and how much is about say, regulation, legislation and other potential barriers that are more technical?
0: Well, the cultural point's interesting, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that today. The biggest issue we faced here really is, is a regulatory one. We've seen prospectus rules set in Brussels over decades past, uh, serving a purpose supposedly to protect the individual. And actually, all they've done is block out individual investors. They've blocked out retail. There are some very specific rules not least is around the fact that the size of a prospectus and the need to publish one is an onerous task on a company seeking to raise capital. Uh, and so if you can avoid that, then do so. Um, and of course, you know, with that comes an amazing amount of financial language, which is, is quite difficult to understand for the, the, the naysayer, for the, the average investor. We work really hard to try and translate the language of this industry into words that the chair of any company all the way down to his or her granddaughter can understand.
1: Do you think retail Im- investors will see something like Arm as a big opportunity? Is, is as, as I said in my introduction, it can that be a turning point if we pitch a business like that in the right way? And as you said, you, you boil it down to terms
0: that people can understand. Arm is the right profile of company because, you know, it has UK origin. Uh, it's an amazing success story for our country. It's obviously just listed in the US. I mean, I think it's interesting to take note that uh, going back to your point around culture. Um, if you look back to the 1980s, what seemingly is being talked about a lot at the moment in financial services was the success of the privatisations of businesses of utility companies then, so British Gas and so on, with "quote unquote" the Tell Sid campaign. And and there's a lot of talk today on the round the fact that we need the equivalent uh, event to to wake up markets to help awaken a sense of of ownership. And indeed engagement with the public and the fact that equities as an asset class are the best performing, you know, globally through any time period. And so really it's about providing that connection for the individual to recognize that if they want to invest for the future, equities are a very, very clear and beneficial way of doing so, far more so than it was, was talked about on one of your last sessions, you know, cryptocurrencies where you've seen five million people engage uh, in a way that, you know, if, if only we had a fraction of that level of engagement into equity markets, that would be hugely beneficial.
1: How do we communicate the idea that equities aren't this you know big risk? They are suitable for retail investors. I mean, clearly crypto has, has won quite a, uh, a ground war of being able to attract so many of them despite its risk, but you still hear people go, oh, I don't want to in- invest in stocks.
0: I'll lose my money. How do we communicate? Look, I think a big part of that is the need to educate people Mm -hmm. and to understand the benefits of risk versus reward. The US has been on an amazing journey. If you go back 15 years to around the time of financial crisis, there was a a, a hiatus of any activity in the US in terms of IPOs. And they went through a similar exercise prior to that, in fact, as far back as the 1960s, to try and equitize Broader public, and that was the launch of their 401k, which is the equivalent of their, you know, pension plan. Um, it is a fact today, and again, talks about a lot now that the U.S. citizen, it starts at home, is known to stand around the barbecue and talk about the investments they've made directly into equities. So, wouldn't it be great if we had a much broader awareness uh, and level of comfort around the benefits of what public equities bring? I think I think the key to that is is to do with how we communicate. That means educate the investors, and thank you, Rachel Kent, for the review she submitted into into the FCA and and with industry to look at the benefits of providing broad access to equity research. Um, But otherwise, what we also need has been referred to as a lightning rod moment. So whether it's the equivalent of an arm IPO or a guilt issuance from the government or other instruments that would capture the imagination of the broader public, and turn their attention to understanding what it means to invest for the future. Not because you're tucking monies into a pension and and, and getting lost in that, but understanding that if you take elements of risk, and let's look at this on a a spectrum of proportionality, but risk can equal great returns and therefore savings for the future that solves much bigger issues that we face today. That point you made on the research review leads me
1: very neatly to the first question from the audience, remember guys, to uh, post yours in the Q&A if uh, you want to ask one of James. Henry asks, access to research for retail investors for smaller companies. If indeed this becomes a centralized reality, feasibly, this will have to come at a cost to the retail investor, right? I.e. just like it does to institutional investors.
0: Look, I think that's that's a fair analysis. Um how does research get paid for today is a a very big open debate, given the way rules and regulations have shifted. Um, I I think what one's got to address is that broader ownership of equities is a really important aspect of what I would term bringing down the cost of equity.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So as a public company, if you are looking to the stock market as a, a source of future growth capital, and there's all the merits of going public, You've got to address the fact that to serve the broadest audience possible means educating them. It means building that awareness, providing comfort and understanding of your business. And the research element is very key. So whether the costs are borne by the company itself or within the fee structure of the advisors, the investment bank and so on, is, is, a, is a topic for much broader debate. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you, you know, nothing comes for free in that regard. Do reviews like... Rachel's at least show a political appetite for
1: change what is the kind of music that you're picking up from senior figures about whether we are going to see any significant momentum behind this or whether we're just going to have review after review after review
0: so look that's a good question and and it's worth taking stock of the fact we've had three years of uh reviews submitted from Khalifa through to the hill review through to Mark costs in secondary capital raising review and so on. And as was quoted by uh, Charles on your last session, the review season is coming to an end, we hope. I think what's really exciting is across the industry, there's absolute buy-in on the main agendas of change that have being, you know, that are coming through from these reviews. At the moment, the FCA has submitted a, a series of consultation papers. And what I'm encouraged by is that the words and conclusions of those papers are affirmatory in form for what's come through in the prior reviews. So now it's a question of executing those. And I think it's very exciting that the FCA has a very listening ear at the moment to industry and to what we can do to move our systems forwards, to embrace technology in a digital age, to stay competitive versus other geographies and so on. And I think it's interesting just to cite, if you take Nikhil Rathi as the CEO of the FCA, he was the first person to quote um, you know, in times gone by that you know public markets are public for a reason and we are under pressure to bring the public back into public markets. Uh, and what we're seeing from the FCA is complete alignment uh, with, with that agenda. You mentioned the
1: pensions puzzle earlier and the cultural difference with 401k being very much individual equity led and not quite the same attitude to uh, equity investing here in our our pensions do you think that using the pension as a vehicle is the primary way we should go about this i'm thinking of course of for example the mansion house compact where a variety of leading pension providers over here have committed to investing 5% in unlisted assets to try and grow more companies to the scale that they can list are are pensions going to be absolutely key to this mission
0: i think pensions are a very very important part but by no means the full picture if you imagine a world in which every individual you know every every birth is is mandated with an investment fund that is seeded by the government with fairly small numbers that's a very exciting way to help create and nurture an equity culture and a sense of investment from the broader public. I think it's very interesting to take stock of where we are today with the ISA form we have in the UK, because there's circa 300 billion, as is widely understood, of cash sitting in ISAs, earning nothing today. And there's bigger numbers than that. There's circa three quarters of a trillion, so 750 billion pounds sitting in investments, uh, uh, vehicles that again, are not seeking any form of risk and therefore not appropriate returns. So this goes way beyond just a pension issue. So how do we get that cash into equities? Is it about
1: without maybe having heavy handed regulation that forces people where to invest? How do we nudge it in a more productive direction without doing that?
0: Well, the, the first step, I think, is the regulatory reforms that are coming through. And very specifically within that, it's interesting, When an IPO takes place in the UK, uh, the prospectus rules require that to have a public offer, you have to have the deal open for a minimum of six days. And that's been the key reason behind only one in 15 IPOs in 2021 running a full public offer. Why? Well, because if you're the book runner on the deal, and if you're the company raising the capital, when your advisor turns to you and says, "and says six days means you have to have the books open over a weekend," we can close it within three days if we're not including the public. Yeah. That's a rational reason. You know, bird in hand is worth two in the bush is a, is an old expression, and I think uh, I, it is sound advice to some extent. So it's interesting that, that six days is now mooted to being reduced to three days, and there's been great support and consensus around that time frame. If you listen to the platforms, they can see that with digital means, you can push the information on a transaction through to the investor and give them the chance to participate in a very efficient way within a three-day term. And the other key element is the fact that if you want to raise more than eight million euros from the public, you have to have a prospectus. So that is a natural cap that's prevented inclusion of the broadest, you know, tail of, of investors. The the individuals uh, from the capital raising you know, cycle. Uh, but that is changing.
1: With those prospectuses, how do you draw the line between giving retail investors enough information to be able to know what they're buying and being overly burdensome on firms that might want to put some of these together but just think it's too much paperwork?
0: That is the biggest question you've asked so far and it's not <laughs> an answer in the remaining time we have today. Um, All I would say is it is about proportionality and I'm very excited and optimistic that we have the right minds collectively addressing exactly that topic with the right sense of what it means to address risk and address reward and provide individuals with full information so they can make an informed decision, Uh, which I think is interesting when one considers the benefits of, of, of retail investor inclusion.
1: I want to talk a little bit
0: about the partnership that you struck
1: with Winterflood earlier this year, um attempting to distribute to these retail investors, but through the kind of professional wealth managers, as I understand it. Talk us through the impact of you know why wealth managers, why you know private client advisors also have a role here and how that partnership works.
0: Well, look, as primary bid, uh, our success is founded on the basis that we partner with everybody. Right, that's, that's how we maximize inclusion. This is about inclusivity, not exclusivity. Uh, Winter floods are an exceptional organization and for a very long time have driven the agenda of retail inclusion in secondary markets. And it's really remarkable. If you, if you look at uh, uh, key moments in history, such as uh, Brexit and uh, you know, 9-11 uh, and the dot-com crash, and if you look more recently at, at COVID, it's very, very interesting that it's it's been retail flows. The marginal buyer has been a retail investor in terms of what's lifted markets and created that sense of rational response in share prices. And I mention that because winter floods, you know, have, have had days post financial crisis when they were trading more of the bank shares than any of the other counterparties in the market, and that was all retail flows. Now, uh, I just want to draw on to the latter half of your question. Which is all about distribution through wealth managers and again as primary bid we're partnered with everybody so we work hand in glove with hargreaves lansdowne aj bell interactive investor and 60 plus other wealth managers and execution partners to make sure that we're giving every shareholder that whole of market access to a fundraising whether it's an ipo or indeed a follow-on fundraising in the equity markets
1: how big a chunk do you think that retail investors could have of the UK market? Say let's project five, 10 years, all of these nice reforms we're talking about go through. Are we ever going to get to you know the kind of 40% level that you were talking about in, in other countries, the 60%? Or will institutions still dominate markets like the UK?
0: So again, it's about balance. I think uh, the US at 40 plus percent is is relatively high but has its merits i think it's interesting if we look closer to home the nordic region has been fascinating in 2022 you had over 200 ipos of largely small to mid-sized companies listing in the region and there's no doubt that the support for those transactions in part came from the fact that they have a deeper pool of retail money of, of individual investors participating uh, I, my sense is that today, you know, 11% or thereabouts in the UK, to see that number move to 20 would be a very, very healthy and, and I guess, uh, measured uh, outcome. And again, it's, this is about avoiding extremes and looking at what's right. And it's a, the retail investor is, going back to the, the title of today's discussion, is not so much the key, but is a very, very important and I think a growing part of this jigsaw of what healthy markets can and should look like. Speaking of rational
1: and measured investment. Do you think that retail investors maybe got a bad name from the pandemic day trading boom where, you know, people were posting on online forums things about, you know, GameStop and AMC and, and all the rest of it and the kind of the, the meme stock crypto end of retail investing. Has that hurt the reputation maybe of the everyday investor, quote unquote?
0: I actually don't think it has and I think that's because anyone who's looking at life with 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 you know the right focus and through the right lenses will address the fact that we've seen extremes and that's an extreme of where we can get to um, but that is not the day-to-day function of markets and so uh, you know it, the fact is that it's very easy to keep a retail investor base fully informed and educated on the developments of a listed company through digital means you can do it very cost effectively and with that comes very rational support, price liquidity, what we term positive liquidity, and price discovery uh, from from a broader audience. So I think I think in my view, and from what we see behaviorally in terms of trading patterns post the transactions we do, is that there are far more benefits than than uh, than misgivings in terms of that that broader inclusion of a, of a retail audience. Do you do you think that?
1: policymakers here are feeling a genuine pressure from other jurisdictions. Do you think that post-Brexit it's a, a, this is framed through a lot of the kind of international competitiveness lens rather than just let's boost domestic markets, cool, but that if a lot of it is because we've seen the success of New York, because we've seen the success of you know, Middle Eastern bosses growing in popularity, for example?
0: Uh, yes and no. So the fact that you've got US IPOs taking place today and there is a pipeline of transactions in Europe gives us great cause for concern in London. But in the same way that the US saw a fallow period 15 years ago, that's what we're experiencing now for a number of, of broader reasons. And I would say that on balance, um, London is nowhere near as broken as some would say, right? Perception and reality are yeah. quite quite different. Um, I think what, what also matters here, though, is that we have uh, a very interesting profile now of uh, foreign ownership in our marketplace. So going back to your question on pensions, the typical UK pension or pension fund, go back 25 years, was over 50% allocated to domestic UK equities. Whereas today, UK represents typically less than 4% of that asset allocation. That's a problem, and that's something we need to fix. I think it's interesting that, again, a necessary jigsaw piece to make that happen is the fact that if the public see the benefits of owning domestic equities, supporting our own economy in that way, that will drive greater levels of awareness and hopefully a shift in the balance of how much of our pension pools and other sources of investment are coming and are flowing into, I should say, domestic equities as opposed to foreign. I think one other point to make is, uh, it is interesting, you know, having exited Europe, we are changing the rules around how prospectuses work in the UK to favor us. Uh, we know as primary bid, because we're present in Europe, we have a, 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 a licensed and regulated business based out of Paris, and now looking to move into nine other geographies in Europe. We know that the European regulators are watching very closely what's happening in the UK. And we've got to be very careful that they don't leapfrog the intentions and the telegraph changes that we've already made here. Uh, If they move faster than us, that would be a great pity because we've got every reason and level of potential to stay out in front and remain highly competitive as the main source of funding, public equity funding for Europe.
1: We've got another uh, question in from the audience. This one's from Neil. Thanks very much, Neil. Do um, feel free to uh, add yours after this one as well. Neil says much of the retirement funds in the US are invested in index funds. Many of these funds are advertised by showing the performance over five, 10, and 20 year periods. Why can't the UK show its investors how well a typical portfolio grows within the FTSE 100, for example?
0: Good idea. Um, look, I think the index fund is a very necessary. Part to play in the cap table of every listed company, but getting that balance right is really important. And I think this is again where retail investors come in, is a source of active capital, which is what we need to maintain healthy and efficient share prices and healthy markets. Let's talk a
1: bit more about your guys' plans for the future as a business. You you mentioned kind of European expansion, but you've got some some pretty powerful backing from the likes of SoftBank. What's what's next apart from that expansion? Are you guys looking to raise any more as part of that expansion? Is it new service lines? What's the what's the future look like for you guys?
0: So as a business, we're very well capitalized and focus for us is the fact that we can take what we've established as best practice here in the UK and export that to foreign shores. We've done so into, into France and we're looking into the Netherlands and Belgium and elsewhere within Europe Um, We also have a big focus on the U.S. And again, that really is all about partnership. So very excited about where we're going in terms of partnering with the appropriate institutions in the U.S. market to be able to give the U.S. public perfect access to transactions in, in similar ways. Otherwise, parking the drug geographical agenda, I think what's also very, very interesting is that whilst we have a deep history of working in equities and within that we do a lot with investment trusts, a lot of our transactions are with investment trusts, which are perfect instruments for the retail investor to own, given the underlying spread of, of uh, risk and portfolio approach that the investment trust represents. But we are just as focused today on what we can do in the bond markets. It's very interesting that, you know, we have seen the yield curve change so dramatically. Uh, and when you look at what's happening elsewhere, take Belgium, for example, Only recently they, they in a a matter of days, raised over 20 billion euros from retail investors for a government-backed instrument on a one-year term. And so we're very excited about what we believe we can do to wake up awareness of how bonds can represent a really interesting element of anyone's future investments and that portfolio approach. If you listen to what the platforms are saying, uh, ownership of bonds today directly has dropped significantly over the last 10 or so years, but we're seeing that turn. The interest is growing rapidly and for very good reason.
1: One more question from the floor. Uh, Ram says, as a retail investor in the USA, my experience of participating in IPOs has been very negative due to two reasons. One, most often retail investors are shut out from getting any allocation of IPO shares before it starts trading on an exchange. Two, over the past few years, many IPOs, especially in the tech sector, have performed poorly, resulting in losses. How would you respond to, to those kind of challenges to, uh, to retail investors coming in?
0: I'm going to answer the second question first. Um, it is a fact, if you look at the performance of capital markets transactions, and that means IPOs, but also existing listed companies raising capital, Um, it's outstripped underlying markets by over 4% through any time period. And that's compounding on the fact that the equity markets are the best performing asset class equivalently. Um, Now, through any near-term period, you will see ebbs and flows on the the performance of IPOs. And that's buyer beware uh, is is the simplest point to make. But I want to come back to the first point because they they, they are sort of cross-purposes. Uh, you know, it's been said in the distant past, IPO does not stand for important people only. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's exactly why we exist, to represent the individual at the board table, to give the smallest shareholder equal access and rights to the largest. And and that's a particularly exciting thing when one's looking at a business going through an IPO. Uh, I think what's really exciting is a growing awareness that engaging with your stakeholders, or what we see as the community around a company, is a really clever thing to do if done correctly at the point of IPO because you're creating ownership from your customers, your employees, and of course the broader public. And that's proven, where done well, proven to be incredibly beneficial to the company. And I think in answer to to Ram's question, that is now understood. I think we see great support from the investment banks and other advisors and the legal profession uh, to support that, that same agenda. So, so we hope that the future is quite distant, different to where we've been in the recent and sort of and and you know and in and, and the past
1: time has flown by and we are we are rapidly running out of it so maybe let's let's close on on what your message to companies looking to float would be in terms of where to list how to list and the role that retail investors play in that
0: there are so many reasons uh, for for every individual company to consider, you know, timing of listing and location of listing and size and profile of transaction. I think my parting message would be very simple, and that is no longer is it distracting or complex to include the broadest base of investors possible. And so please embrace the fact that you can. Uh, It's it's all too easy to follow protocol of history, but I think we're in a time of change. As, As James Palmer said on your last session, in his 30 years of practising as a, as a capital markets lawyer, we've got more support today for change than ever before. And if we hold on to that, then it's very exciting to look at what public markets really mean and the way they can help you know companies to grow and move forwards uh, with the greatest level of support from the broadest audience.
1: James, that's a lovely place to uh, to leave it. James, thanks so much for joining us today and thanks so much to our audience for tuning in. Please join us again tomorrow as Investors Business Daily's Elisa Coram and Arnie Gutierrez walk through how to find stocks with the it factor that can contribute substantial returns to your portfolio. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.
0: The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.